Our God, as we come now to look to your word, we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, I pray that um, I would simply be a vessel for you, um, that I would not take anything away from what you want to say. And Lord, I pray that all of us um, would have hearts and ears and lives receptive um, to what you have to say to us tonight. Lord, may you be glorified and may we just simply see Christ as we hear from him. Amen. I mentioned a few weeks ago that this book of Esther, I think, could be made into some kind of epic TV series. I heard earlier in the week that actually apparently it has been turned into a musical, um, so who knows, maybe I'll be singing in the weeks ahead once I look into that and um, I'll scare you all away. But I think a lot of people would be hooked if this were to be made for the screen, the small screen or the big screen. People would set up, I think, um, to binge watch all these episodes. You know, we've come a long way from the alcohol-fueled parties in chapter one and the solid gold couches and all of that um, to mourning and fasting in episode three with this looming threat of mass genocide. Remember where we are, we're in Persia, in the city of Susa, it's after the exile, so God's people were punished for their unfaithfulness to him, but they have been restored, just as the Lord had promised, but they're still under Persian rule. They've had the Babylonians and the Medes and now the Persians, and they've been allowed to return to Judah, most of them. And the king on the throne is Xerxes. Back in chapter one, he had this great six month, 180 display of all his wealth and splendor, followed by a week long work event, sorry, a party, um, I'll call it what it is, where everyone in the city was invited to come and drink as much as they like. It's all very extravagant. It wasn't wine time Fridays or whatever Boris had. It was wine time week um, with gold and marble and jewels on display everywhere. And when the king has a bit too much to drink, he sends for Vashti the queen, remember her? But she doesn't come. She doesn't appear before him. And that won't do, so he puts her out of the city. He deposes her and searches for a new queen. And that's when we first met Mordecai and Esther. They're cousins, Esther was orphaned at a young age. Mordecai, her older cousin, takes care of her. They're Jews, ethnically at least, but they haven't returned to their homeland. We're not sure why, but the fact that Mordecai is a Persian name seems to suggest that he's more or less embraced the Persian way of doing things and abandoned his Jewish roots. But Esther, well, she has a Persian name too, Hadassah, but she has kept her Hebrew name. But they haven't come back. Worship in the temple obviously wasn't something that they were that interested in, even though to a devout Jew that would have been absolutely central. So the king sends out looking for a wife. Esther goes along, becomes part of the harem, ends up sleeping with and then marrying the king. Now, this is in huge contrast to um, other stories in the Bible that we'll be familiar with. Think about Daniel, you know, Daniel and his friends, they were very open about their identity. No, we're Jews, we can't eat that food. No, we're Jews, we, we only worship the Lord, we can't bow down to that bronze statue and so on. But Esther, it seems, puts up no protest. She willingly goes against the ethics and the law of Moses. And Mordecai and her conspire together to keep her identity a secret. But Mordecai, I don't know if this is a good illustration or not, but Mordecai is a bit like an East Belfast atheist. You know, he's an atheist, but he's still a prod. That kind of idea. You know, he's an atheist. He's not a practicing Jew, but he's still a Jew. It's part of his identity. 
even though he has no interest in the spiritual side of things. He foils this assassination plot against the king. He expects to get rewarded, but out of the blue in chapter three, this other man, Haman or Haman, we don't really know how to pronounce the Hebrew A's anyway, he's described as an Agagite, an enemy of the Jews. He's rewarded by the king instead. Remember the Agagites had attacked the Israelites in the desert and God said that they would be enemies forever. So there's this sectarian tension between Mordecai the Jew and Haman the Agagite. And when Mordecai refuses to bow before Haman, Haman gets angry. His anti-Semitism comes to the fore and he goes to the king. He's very cunning. He doesn't say that he's going to kill all the Jews, but he says, you know, there's these certain people in your kingdom. I don't think you should put up with them. They break the law. I'll give you a lot of silver if you let me destroy them. And the king says, no, no, do you know what? You, you've been rewarded. Keep the silver. I trust you. Here's my signet ring. You have my authority. Go and do what you like. So he makes this edict in the name of the king to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews in the kingdom, which is essentially all the Jews on the face of the earth. And that, that was kind of the, the cliffhanger we were left on last week. What's going to happen? That brings us to chapter four. And I have to confess, when I first sat down in the study this week, I thought, happy days. Because this looks a lot simpler than the last two weeks. No need to explain all that stuff about the Persian Empire and harems and concubines. No need to think about who the Agagites are and all of that background information. Finally, something straightforward. Mordecai is sad. Esther hears about it. She wants to know why. She's not sure um, what's going on. And he, he tells her, he tells her about the edict and he asks her to go in and speak to the king. She's not sure that she can because she hasn't spoken to the king in a month. He tells her that maybe the reason that she's been made queen is for a moment such as this. She finally agrees. If I perish, I perish, she says. And she decides to go into the king. Great, a simple passage. A simple sermon about, you know, making the right decision under pressure wherever God has placed us. Wonderful. So I thought. Then I started reading the commentaries. And I read many. And, and these are good, you know, scholarly evangelical commentaries. And I soon discovered that this is one of the most disputed passages in the book of Esther in terms of its interpretation. None of them agreed with one another. I didn't find two that said the same thing. And I thought... Oh dear. So let's just walk through the text together and I'll, I'll flag up what some of the issues are. We'll, we'll do this relatively quickly because it is a, a pretty straightforward story on one level. Firstly, we see Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes. He's weeping and wailing loudly and a lot of the other Jews are too. He sits outside the city gate. He's not allowed to go in in sackcloth and ashes. Remember, back to chapter one, Susa is this extravagant place. They like a party, you know, they like extravagance, they like happiness, they like celebration. So you can be in sackcloth and ashes, but you have to do it out there. You can't come in like that. Then in verse three, we're told um, that the Jews all over the kingdom are mourning with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Read that in verse three. I've highlighted those words there, fasting, weeping, and wailing. Now, here is the first point of debate. By fasting, weeping, and wailing, are the Jews, is Mordecai repenting? Is he turning? Is he praying to God? Or are they simply doing the thing that they did in that culture when something sad happened? Yes, it's true. Fasting and, and sackcloth and ashes are associated with repentance. 
maybe you might think of something like the book of Jonah, you know, when he eventually does arrive in Nineveh via the stomach of a big fish, the people put on sackcloth and ashes and they repent, they turn to God. But fasting and sackcloth and ashes is also just something that peoples did in the ancient Near East. Many nations who had other gods or even no gods used sackcloth and ashes when they mourned. But I suppose the striking thing is that the author of Esther here seems to quote from the prophet Joel. Joel says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and wailing. And it's not just the same in the English, it's, it's the same structure, it's the same word structure uh, in the Hebrew. And later on in Joel 2, um, he also uses the phrase, who knows the Lord may forgive you. And, and Mordecai uses that phrase too, who knows, maybe you're here for such a time as this. So on the one hand, you have scholars saying, look, the author of Esther can't mention God, you know, because that's their thing. And they can't mention turning to the Lord or repentance or anything like that. But they're quoting Joel to let us know that that's really what's going on. But on the other hand, you have other scholars who say, no, no, the author is quoting Joel because that's what they should have been doing. But the author stops short of actually saying they repented because they didn't. And the power of the book of Esther is that the fact that the people didn't turn to God, they should have repented, but they didn't. Well, such was his mercy that he graciously uses Esther to deliver them anyway. So which is it? Well, the text doesn't say. We'll come back. Then in the next section, Esther hears about Mordecai. So she uses one of her servants, Hathak, to go between her and Mordecai to find out what's going on. Look with me at verse 7. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Tuck that away in your memory. He told him the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. But Esther says, look, this is gonna be difficult. We think this is about five years after Esther married the king, we're not entirely sure, but far from those days in chapter two, when Esther pleased the king, the novelty is maybe worn off for Xerxes, he hasn't summoned her for 30 days, and no one can go into the king unsummoned. The penalty for doing that is death, though there is one exception, The king can stretch out his golden scepter to forgive the person who has come without being invited. But it's a risky strategy. It's risky. And Esther doesn't seem very willing to take that risk. But when Mordecai hears that, here's what happens. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Now, there are three elements to this, and all of them are disputed. Firstly, Mordecai says, do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. What's Mordecai saying? Is he saying, you know, the truth always comes out in the end, you know, don't think that you're safe in there? Or is he threatening her? Is he saying, if you don't do this for me, you're not gonna be safe in there. I'm gonna tell him and I'll tell people who you are, you won't be spared. 
Then he says, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Well, the scholars earlier who thought that Mordecai had repented, well, they think that this means that Mordecai is trusting in God. God will save us some other way. If, if you don't do it, God will save us some other way anyway. But he's a God of justice, so if you don't, you and your father's family will perish. But others see it as this kind of optimism without any real foundation. You know, it exists today, this kind of thinking. It'll turn out okay in the end. We'll be fine. It'll be grand. People who do wrong, they'll suffer in the end. Good will prevail. Some kind of karma, some kind of the universe rearranging everything and balancing everything out. And then finally he says, and who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. Again, is this trust that God has put her in the right place at the right time? Or is it karma? Is it the universe working things out so that good will triumph over evil? Now, the rest of the story is pretty simple. Esther decides she will do it. She's going to risk it. She asks Mordecai to get all the Jews to fast for her. She'll do the same for three days, and then she'll go into the king, even though it's against the law. If I perish, I perish, she says. But again, this debate rages among the scholars. Is she fasting because she's repenting? Or is there still no mention of turning to God because fasting was just the cultural thing to do in that situation? Like people who get married in a church even though they have no faith. You know, it's the right way to do things. My mum would want us to do it that way. Again, the text doesn't tell us. Now, you know the old saying, if the shoe fits. Well, there's more than one shoe that fits here. More than one interpretation where the shoe fits. So which is it? Well, I'll tell you the conclusions that I've come to. Um, but I do want to say first that if you disagree with me, that's all right, because I have some good evangelical scholars on my side and you would have some on your side too. Um, but I think this does make best sense of the passage and, and particularly the passage as a part of the book of Esther as a whole. I'll start with the less controversial issue. Was Mordecai threatening Esther when he said, do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? I think the answer is no. I think it's much simpler than that, actually. Do you notice that earlier, and I told you to tuck it away in your minds, when Mordecai is telling Esther what's wrong with him, Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. I don't know if that strikes you as strange, but why did Mordecai tell her about that? Because after all, the king had refused the silver, so it was irrelevant. We read that last week. The king said, no, hold on to the silver. It's fine. I trust you. But I think Mordecai tells Esther this to communicate with her that the king's house is not safe. This didn't happen behind the king's back. Mordecai is saying, I know what the king was offered. Mordecai saying, you know, I'm pretty close to the king. Haman is one of those servants who is allowed to go in to the king without being invited. And Mordecai knows about it, so he's pretty close to that royal court too. This goes right to the core of the monarchy. Somebody that close isn't safe. He turned down nearly four tons of silver, so keen he was to give Haman what he wanted. He didn't have to buy the king's favor. 
So when Mordecai's saying that you know she shouldn't think this, it's because he's concerned about her, quite simply. She might not even be safe there. So she might as well risk it, he thinks. Go and address the king, because you're not safe where you are anyway. But I suppose the big issue that hangs over this, and it comes back again and again, did they repent or not? Now, this is, this is a massive argument in the commentaries. I, I normally wouldn't take you through my working out like this, but, but most scholars, I think, here are barking up the wrong tree by even asking the question. But they all debate it. They're right to say that the text isn't clear. But I think the text isn't clear because the text isn't meant to be clear. The point is God is going to act anyway, whether they repent or not. Now, I suppose if you really pushed me, I would say I think that they didn't repent. Um, I think the text doesn't say they repented, therefore they didn't. They just put on sackcloth and ashes because it seemed like the right thing to do. This also does fit better, I think, with the rest of the book of Esther, um, where we will see Mordecai and Esther oversee some pretty horrendous stuff, including massacres, which doesn't really seem like the behavior of people who have turned to God. Now, some people would argue it's divine justice, and it might be, but it doesn't sit well, I don't think, with the idea of repentance. But if we obsess over that, we miss the point. The reason I took you through all of that and pointed out all the ambiguity is because it's meant to be ambiguous. We're meant to notice that. We don't know whether they repented or not, and that's okay, because God was going to act anyway, and no human action would change that. God is sovereign. God will act as God will act. Now, I want to be quite clear about this, though. I'm definitely not saying that repentance isn't important. I mean, repentance is going to determine whether we spend our eternity in the joy of heaven or not. Repentance is an ongoing activity that Christians are commanded in Scripture to do. So repentance is really important. And God does sometimes, because of his grace, he does sometimes act because of human action. Sometimes when we sin, he, he lets us endure the consequences of that sin as discipline. Sometimes when we ask him to do something in prayer, he does it. But the point I'm making is that we can't force God's hand. Not by fasting, not by praying, not by wearing sackcloth and ashes or, or whatever else we might think that we do by some act of service or other. The author of Esther keeps it ambiguous and ironically doesn't mention God in this to communicate with us that God's in complete control. The author doesn't want us to think that Mordecai and the other Jews repented and so God saved them as a reward. And he doesn't want us to think that Mordecai didn't repent and that he and Esther acted in their own strength either and that God wasn't really involved. No, it's ambiguous because God was going to save his people anyway. Despite all the sinful decisions that had been made up to that point, God really did have Esther in position as queen for such a time as this. I don't think that's what Mordecai meant when he said that Esther was there for such a time as this. I think he meant it in the same way as people who aren't Christians say when something unlikely happens, so you know, well, it was just meant to be. Or if they miss out on a job or something that, you know, they'll say, well, it just wasn't meant for me, it wasn't meant to be, was it? I think that's what Mordecai means when he says, Esther's there for such a time as this. But ironically, Esther truly was there for such a time as this, because despite all that had gone on, 
God made sure that she was in exactly the right place where she needed to be. In the same way, Mordecai, he was a proud Jew, like the East Belfast atheist prod, if you want to run with that analogy. You know, he believed that the Jews would never die out. He had no basis for that except his deep personal sense of identity, pride in that identity, probably also hatred for Haman and the others. He thought that good would bear out in the end. And again, ironically, he was right, but for the wrong reasons. God would intervene, not because of any obligation, not because Mordecai was in any way superior to Haman, and we'll see that later in the book, but God would intervene because he was always in control and he loved his people and he would preserve his people so that ultimately from among his people, he would save them through his son. I think that's the story of Esther chapter four. You can argue with me on that if you want, that's fine. But just two things for us to to take away from this tonight. We've been left again on this cliffhanger, you know, Esther's going to go into the king. What's going to happen? Will she survive? Will she be successful? Um, And Marty has the fun of taking us through all the action next week um, when she does that. But firstly, we see something of the relationship here between the sovereignty of God and human action. So God is completely in control over everything, even when the people involved in the events, like in this book, even when they're not obedient to him. I think probably an an obvious example from the Bible to, to illustrate this would be Joseph. You know, he was sent into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. Horrible events. He was sold to the Ishmaelites. They took him on, sold him to the Egyptians. But what does Joseph realize at the end of the story? He says to his brothers, And now, sorry if you can't see that, I know it's small. Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. We don't have time to go into all the intricacies of Joseph's story, but what he's saying, God sent me here. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. You sold me as a slave. That's what brought me here, but no, God sent me here. God brought me here ahead of you. Similarly in Esther, sinful actions, going into the king's harem, sectarian hatred, a lack of repentance, I think, but nevertheless, God is in control. I don't know what you think about um, Boris and Partygate or Keir Starmer and Beergate, just for balance, or the lack of a functioning assembly or executive here or the RSC border or passing of laws that are sinful and go against the word of God. I, I could go on. I imagine many of us are frustrated about many of these things and some of the people and would want some of those things to change or issues to be resolved or or, or the moral character of the people involved to change. But don't despair because God is ultimately in control. Even through the evil action of sinful people, even when it's people who know nothing of him, he is sovereign He's in control and history is moving towards that great day when Christ returns, whether people acknowledge that or not. 
But then you might be tempted to say that because God is sovereign and God was in control and, and Joseph and, and God is in control of this situation in Esther that, that whatever the people in the story did actually doesn't matter that much. You might conclude that therefore our actions don't really matter that much because God controls history anyway. So what does it matter? Jesus will build his church anyway. He'll bring the people to faith that he wants to bring to faith anyway. So our actions aren't that important. But I know you know that to conclude that would be a mistake. Yes, God is completely in control. Yes, Jesus will build his church anyway. He'll build it through us or he'll build it in spite of us. And we'll see that in Esther. But human action is very important. Joseph's brother still sold him into slavery. Jesus said to Peter, I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Yes, God would ultimately do the work, but Peter also had to act. You know the story, the church was born at Pentecost when the Spirit fell and Peter preached to the open crowd. He preached to the Jews. And then after having visions, Peter opened up the door of salvation for the Gentiles too. And it was Peter's job to convince the, the other apostles and elders of the fact that salvation had been opened up in that way. God would do the work, but Peter still had to act. So God is sovereign, but we are still responsible for our actions. When Jesus tells um, that of Judas that he's about to betray him, he says, the son of man will go as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would be better for him if he'd never been born. God has ordained it. it you know, it's been written about me. The son of man will go. God said it. It will happen. But woe to that man. He's still responsible for his actions. He still freely chose to betray our Lord. Similarly, back to Peter on the day of Pentecost, he says to the crowd, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. It was God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God did it. God handed him over to you, but you took him and you put him to death. Human action does matter. And so I suppose that brings us to our second takeaway tonight, and, th and that is that the decisions we take really do matter. I don't think Esther knew that the decision she made really meant so much in the plan of, of God saving his people through Jesus. I don't think that Mordecai knew that when he said that the Jews would be saved some other way, that it would be the Lord who would make that happen. But as people who do recognize, hopefully, that God is in control of history and that history is heading towards judgment and glory, well, we also then must recognize that our decisions really matter. And that's true even if we've made the wrong decisions in the past, if we've made mistakes. God is still in control. So we aren't defined by those mistakes because he's full of grace and forgiveness and he's never lost control. When we're born again, that decision, that step that we take is only the first of the decisions that we make as God's children. At times in our lives, we have to make decisions between the easy, the easy choice of the least path of resistance, going along with our work colleagues, our fellow students, or whoever, and the hard choice of obeying God's unpopular word. Sometimes we're inclined to, to only do the right thing when um, it seems too painful to do the wrong thing. 
That was Esther's predicament. She was stuck between a rock and a hard place, I suppose you would say. But I actually think that's really encouraging because even when we only turn to God reluctantly and even for the wrong reasons, we're still putting ourselves in a place where we can receive mercy and forgiveness. Even when his people are living like pagans in the court of a pagan king, if we're his people, we're not lost. But our decisions do matter. Even thinking back to this morning and and family, the decisions that we make in our relationships do matter. If you're single and, and you're seeking a spouse, well, the decisions you make, the kind of person that you seek out does matter. That opportunity when you have to decide whether to cheat on that exam or a taxpayer decides whether to cheat on their tax return or a husband on his wife, those decisions do have a massive impact on who we are. And those big defining moments, you know, choosing a profession or a a marriage partner. I I actually heard recently of a woman who told a friend of mine that she'd always wanted to be an overseas missionary. But then she got engaged to a man who wasn't a Christian and, well, that fell apart. And I think that's something she's already regretting. But all of us are, are faced with these decisions, some incredibly big like that, some which seem insignificant. Perhaps, like Esther, you've been brought to where you are today by circumstances completely out of your control. Maybe things have happened in your family that you you had no say in, things that happened at work that you didn't instigate. Where Esther lived was probably determined by Mordecai and his family. Perhaps you've also been brought to where you are today by flawed decisions, maybe that other people have made or that you've made yourself along the way. Maybe you've concealed your faith instead of living openly for Christ. Perhaps you face calamity at the moment in your life, in your family or in your work or in your relationships. But I just want to finish by encouraging you tonight, wherever you are, rest in this, that his purposes are greater than yours. History is heading towards one glorious conclusion. And who knows, maybe you have come to your present situation for such a time as this. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that as we come to you, we come to the one who is in control, the one for whom the the nations are like dust on the scales, the one who is wise and powerful and glorious beyond what we can imagine. And we have a relationship with you as our Father, and we are hidden with Christ in you, And so we can rest and have peace knowing that you have every outcome secure. And Lord, even if it troubles us or surprises us or knocks us down, it doesn't cause you to blink because you are in control. You know it all and the ultimate outcome is secure. So Lord, we pray for ourselves and ask that you would give us that confidence and help us to know that you have all things at hand. And so, Lord, help us to trust in you and walk and live our lives for Jesus, with Jesus, in the power of Jesus. In his name, amen.